Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 176 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. In this week's podcast, finally, we have all the colonies home safely and the process of assessing, feeding and uniting starts in earnest. Beekeeping Short and Sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm delighted to say that our podcast is now sponsored in part by Simon the Beekeeper. Making beekeeping an affordable hobby for everyone, Simon the Beekeeper provides the best value beekeeping equipment possible, along with a super fast delivery service. The bees won't wait, so their customers don't have to either. Visit the website at www simonthebeekeeper.co.uk Hello everyone and thanks for joining me for another podcast. It's been an exciting but exhausting week as we've returned the final batch of colonies from the Borage to their home apiaries here in Norfolk. Once again the weather has been pleasantly dry and not too warm making the blocking up of hives for the move a little less stressy than any midsummer moves when the internal temperatures within the colonies can skyrocket, resulting in overheating and dead bees. Those moves require travel screens to keep the bees cool, but with overnight temperatures dropping to nearer 10 degrees Celsius, and it only being a short journey of around a couple of hours, there really wasn't any problem in moving them with their open mesh floors allowing for ventilation. Once again, though, I was feeling a little nervous towing the trailer, but I needn't have worried. Plenty of straps and the cargo net draped over the top meant it was a trouble-free trip. Once back at the apiary, I've chosen to put the majority of the colonies at the fishing lakes to overwinter this year. But once back, we stripped off the netting and straps and lifted the colonies safely onto the various stands set up to accommodate them. It takes time, but with care and some bright floodlights, it all went really well. I have seen some commercial bee farmers using red lights to illuminate their work area, and I did buy some red filter material for our lights, but I ran out of time trying to work out how best to fit the filter to the lights, and so I just used them as white lights, which actually worked out just fine. The white light does attract a huge number of other flying insects, moths and those nasty little mozzies that bite, so perhaps over the winter months I'll make up a frame to fit the red filters to the front of the lamps to help reduce the number of biting insects that we attract. The other adjustment I want to attempt is some kind of pole to lift the lights higher in the air. They're kind of blinding at the height that I have them currently set at, and so I tend to walk into the back of the trailer or truck. If I can push them higher on a pole of some kind, that would really help. As I say, a job to consider over the winter months. All of the colonies are now safely placed and ready to be assessed for the winter to come. With summer just over, it now becomes really important to maximise the chances these colonies have to make it through the winter. And that's the topic of my chat today. There are a few things required to make sure that they do well and are ready for fast growth in the spring next year. Firstly, health is all important, obviously, I would say, but 
getting them ready for winter invariably means treating in the late summer and early autumn for varroa. This is by no means the only consideration regarding bee health, but it is probably the most important. The varroa mite can be very destructive, allowing several viral infections to take hold of the colony, as well as negatively affecting the adult bees in their own right. The most obvious outward signs of damage being something like deformed wing virus, for instance, where the wings of the adult bee are shriveled and twisted. Other things to look out for are the now deadly chronic bee paralysis virus. It seems to be a recent epidemic, having not been a major player in the concerns of most beekeepers in the past, but more recently it seems to have had something of an exponential growth. Fingers crossed the scientists can find a solution for us. For now though, we all have to remain vigilant. Keep removing wax moth if you see it. Those trails weaving across the comb that hide the wax moth larvae need opening up and the wax moth larvae will no doubt make a dash for it, but nimble fingers are required here. Grab the larvae and feed it to the birds. If you're happy your colonies are in good general health, another consideration is are they large enough to survive the winter? I think more colonies die out over winter because they're simply not large enough than for probably any other reason. And I'm just as guilty as the next beekeeper for trying, hoping to coax that colony through. But what is big enough, I hear you say? Well, it's another one of those beekeeping conundrums that will form the basis of a heated exchange at the local association monthly meeting. It's a very tricky topic to be absolutely specific on. I've had colonies in brood boxes stuffed full of bees suddenly die out and the boxes with barely a frame or two of bees survive and go on to produce a nice crop of honey the following year. Having said that, if you have a nuke of bees on one frame, it's highly unlikely that they'll have enough bees to survive the cold midwinter. There comes a critical point at which there just aren't enough bees to keep everyone warm in the colony. And once they hit that point, it's a downward spiral. Better to unite them with a couple of other nukes or another colony and give them a chance to be split in the spring next year. Uniting colonies is a straightforward process. The most popular method must be the newspaper method. A sheet of newspaper is laid on top of the brood box of one colony and the other colony is placed on top of that. Remember, you will need to remove one of the queens, and my preference is to place the queen-right colony on top of the queenless colony. I figure that the queen-right colony will be less disturbed by being on top, and the queen can simply continue to wander around, laying eggs without having a mob of new bees, rushing around her backwards and forwards, working out where they are and what's going on. I like to hold the newspaper in place with the queen excluder, this also serves to keep the queen in the top box and helps to keep her in one box should you be looking to sort through frames and amalgamate them from both of those boxes into the one single brood box for the winter, removing the other for cleaning. The other thing to consider is do they have enough food stores ready to see out the winter? Now there are lots of calculations that you can make. There are books stuffed full of suggestions as to how much bees will need to see them through the winter, but again, different bees will eat their way through their food stores at different rates. 
far better to give them a good feed of syrup now and check regularly through the winter, topping them up with fondant as needed. That's the way we do it. I pop a bag of fondant on them directly above the main cluster and encourage them up to the crime board to feed. Once there, they tend to sit tightly against the food, making it available to all and keeping it soft with the warmth of the cluster. A fortnightly check through the winter reveals which colonies need topping up, and at the same time, I can make sure that the apiary is more generally secure and that all is well. It's also a nice time to be out in the countryside over the autumn and winter, with everything becoming dormant and resting in readiness for the new year. That's not to say that us beekeepers are dormant. Far from it, there's an awful lot of work to be done during this phase of the year. Personally, I have quite a list of jobs that have been accumulating over the summer while we focused on the bees and honey production, but more of those jobs in the coming weeks and months. Some exciting projects lined up and also jobs that have been put off, if I'm honest, for far too long. That's all to come though. For now, we need to get out into the apiaries and ensure all is sorted because time will drift past quite quickly now that we're into September. I've recently been discussing the plight of the apiary at the hillside allotment site. The town council there have some interesting plans to open the area for more people to have access, but it appears that the plans have fallen foul of the allotment holders themselves, and I guess you might say negotiations are underway. We've been given three primary options. I'm glad to say that all parties want our bees on the site, so it's not as if we're going to lose the apiary. We've actually not had bees there all summer. Two reasons mainly. Firstly, I mistakenly thought the council were in the process of beginning the works in the early spring, so I figured we would need to move the bees out as bees and construction work don't really go together terribly well and I can imagine the beehives being knocked over and angry bees seeking out those that had disturbed them. The other reason of course is the borage. We needed plenty of colonies to move to the borage for the pollination job and it seemed to make perfect sense to remove the hives from this site. As it turned out the cogs at the local town council were not moving that quickly after all and it became apparent that people were noticing that the bees were not there anymore. I had several calls asking if we'd moved out for good with worried allotment holders wanting us reassured that they wanted us back as soon as possible. Well it looks like the confusion is gradually being cleared up and uh, we're so much in demand that as I mentioned we've been offered three separate locations within the allotments area to place our colonies. I don't think much will happen in terms of work this winter, so we'll wait to see what the next instalment will be. I used to struggle to find apiary sites, but these days we get fairly regular offers of locations that we might like to consider to place our hives. The overwintering option is handy to have. Bringing colonies together in relatively close proximity means we can get round them all with the minimum of fuss and the least amount of miles driven. It also allows me to get out to sites that need a clean-up and sort the long grass and inevitable brambles that grow while you're not there. These are all jobs that go unnoticed but demand a fair chunk of time to sort. Finally, we're going to have a bash at making some candles this autumn. We have a reasonable amount of spare wax and I thought it would be fun to have a try at making some candles for sale. 
It's not something I've ever tried, so it will be interesting to see what is involved in the process to get to the point of having something saleable and worthy of putting onto our website. The nice thing is that all of the wax is our own, so I know it's pure Norfolk beeswax with no real contaminants in it. Hopefully that will be reflected in the way the candles burn with little smoke and that nice beeswax smell. The big question, of course, is to dip or pour. I suspect the cheapest option is to dip the wick rather than buy moulds, but I think using moulds will be less time-consuming. And then, what kind of moulds do I choose? Having a brief look just now, there seems to be a bewildering number of different styles and moulds, and boy, they're not cheap. I have to say, some are not really to my taste, but who knows what may be the best seller. Perhaps the best way to go is to aim for simplicity first, and then add to the range with a few seasonal shapes and forms. Perhaps we can find a pumpkin mould for the wax that came off the pumpkin patch colonies. That would be quite nice. Maybe the farmer will allow me to sell some candles during his October pumpkin festival period. That being the case, I really need to get my skates on. It won't be long before Halloween has been and gone, and we'll all be talking about the start of the new year. So look out for the candle videos and chat in the coming weeks. I may as well go the whole hog. And you could suggest that a fantastic Christmas present for any beekeeper would be an annual subscription to my Patreon page. The reason I mention it now is that by the time this podcast goes public, we'll be getting very close to Halloween and beyond. And folks will be asking for ideas for those Christmas presents. Oh my goodness, Christmas. I know a lot of listeners will already be signed up to the podcast and will be hearing this at the beginning of September. And for you guys, I apologise for mentioning Christmas so early, but I've already seen those seasonal gifts starting to sneak their way into the supermarkets here in the UK. For anyone in the States, maybe a subscription would make a nice Thanksgiving present. Don't be shy. It's the gift that keeps giving all year round. Tell them if they get you a podcast subscription, you'll get the very latest tips and techniques from me each week as they're released. Anyway, enough of this self-promotion. It's not something I'm terribly good at, but it needs doing. Let's face it, if not me, then who? That's it for this week. I'll catch up with you all again next time. But for now, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Sweet.